Have you been considering launching a product or even a business based on Python's AI ML stack? We have a great guest on this episode, Dylan Fox, who is the founder of Assembly AI and has been building his startup successfully over the past few years. He has interesting stories of hundreds of GPUs in the cloud, evolving ML models, and much more that I know you're going to enjoy hearing. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 356, recorded February 17th. 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by the Stack Overflow podcast. Join them to hear about programming stories and about how software is made. And Sentry, find out about errors as soon as they happen. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Dylan, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Yes, thank you. I uh, am a fan. I've listened to a lot of episodes and big podcast fan, so I'm happy to be on here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm sure you are. Your specialty is in the realm of turning voice into words. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. I-, I bet you do a lot of studying of media like podcasts or videos and and so on, right? Yeah, it's actually funny. So I started the company, I started Assembly like four years ago. And there was this one audio file that I always used to test our speech recognition (laughs) models on. It was this Al Gore TED Talk from like 2007, I think. And I've almost memorized like parts of that TED Talk because (laughs) I've just tested it so many times. It's actually still part of our end-to-end test suite. It's in there. It's like a legacy kind of founder thing <laughs> that's like in, in the yeah, code still. Cool. Yeah, it is kind of funny, uh, especially now that, so we're, we have, we're like 30 people at the company and I'll see some of the newer engineers like writing tests around like that Al Gore file still. And it makes me laugh because that's like, <laughs> there's no real reason I picked that. It was just something easy that came to me. Yeah. Yeah. You can start. I just got to grab some audio here, something, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I've also listened to like a ton of podcasts and I was with we just started like releasing models for different languages. And I was with someone from our team last week and I heard this like phone call and this like, uh, it's like foreign language, people like screaming on this. I was like, what are you listening to? <laughs> and uh, it is funny as an audio company, you get sometimes data from customers and it's like, you have to like listen to it. Yeah. I bet there's some interesting stories in there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, we're very privacy conscious, so. Not, not yeah, too, course. not too many, but yeah. Yeah. There was just uh, on the verge, there was just a article about a different speech to text company. I don't know. Have you seen this? That there was some suspicious stuff going on. No, like, well, let me see if no. I can find it. I think, what was it called? It was Otter. Otter AI, yeah. which I'm not asking you to speak on them, but this, a journalist's otter.ai scare is a reminder that cloud transcription isn't completely private. Basically, there was a conversation about Uyghurs in China or something like that. Yeah. And then they unprompted reached out to the person who was in the conversation said, could you tell us the nature of why you had to speak about this? No way. They're like, what? That is crazy. Like, that is yeah. crazy. They're like, we're a little concerned about why. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like. Interested in the content of our conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of that like suspicion around, you know, there's some like, like conspiracy theories right around like, oh, does your phone like listen to you yeah. while you're around and does it ambiently listen to you and then use that data to remarket to you. And I was talking to someone about this recently. I did nothing about the location-based advertising world, but sometimes I'll be talking about something and then I'll see ads for it on my phone or if I'm on Instagram or something. And someone told me it's probably more based on like the location that you're in and the other data that they have about you. Yeah. You were at your friend's house. Your friend just searched for that, then told you about it. Yeah, exactly. I think the reality of that is that it's actually more terrifying than if they were just listening yes. to you. Yeah, That they is. can piece together this shadow reality of you that matches reality so well. Yep, 
yeah, like your friend just bought this thing and you went over and then, <laughs> so maybe you're interested in this thing because you're probably, yeah, they probably told you about it yeah, or something, right? Yeah. It is really crazy. It is really crazy. I haven't paid too much attention to all the changes that are happening around. Like I listened to some podcasts, I think on the Wall Street Journal about like the big change that Google's making around that tracking. And now a lot of people are up in arms about that. And it's, it was saying something how like they're going to have, and sorry if I'm derailing whatever plan we had for a conversation here. <laughs> You're derailing in a way that I'm like super passionate about <laughs> because it's so crazy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll go too deep, but yeah, it's so interesting. They said that there's, I'm probably butchering this, but something I like for each user, they're just going to have like six like categories about you. And then one of them is going to be randomly inserted as to somehow anonymize your profile. And I just thought, yeah, it was super weird to hear about how they're doing yeah. that. And like what the meeting was internally that came up with that idea, you know? So I'm like, well, let's just throw a random category on there. I don't know. My thoughts are we're faced or we're presented with a false dichotomy. Either you can have horrible, creepy, tracking, advertising, shadow things like we talked about. Yeah. Or you can let the creators and the sites that make the services you love die. Mm -hmm. There are more choices than two in this world, yeah. right? For example, you could have some kind of ad that is related to what is on the page rather than who is coming to the page, right? right? You don't necessarily have to retarget me. Right. Like for example, right here on this podcast, I'm going to tell people about, I'm not sure without looking at the schedule, what the advertisers are for this episode, but I am going to tell people about that. And it is exactly related to the content of this show. Yep. It's not that I found out that, you know, Sarah from Illinois did this Google search and visit this page. So now we're going to show like, no, it's, there's so many sites like this, um, this one here on the verge, you could have ads for assembly AI and it would be, maybe you don't actually want on this one, but you know, like right, uh, right, things like this, right. it would be totally reasonable to put an ad for speech to text companies on there that requires no targeting and no evil shadow companies. And there's, you know, like we go on and on, but there are many ways like that, right. That don't, require this false dichotomy that is being presented to us. So hopefully we don't end up with either of those because I don't think those are the best options or the only options. Yeah, it's weird how that's kind of how things developed, you know, to, yeah. to where we are now. Yeah, but I agree with you. There's probably a lot we could unravel <laughs> Everyone's here. looking for like, okay, well, if we do retargeting, we can get 2% better returns. And like, you know, the, no one's worried about, well, what happens to society? Yeah, it's, that's actually <laughs> what I was going to say. It's all about the kind of high growth like society that we have where we need to maximize growth and maximize returns. And I mean, I understand this acutely. Like I'm, you know, the CEO of a startup, so I, I get it. But <laughs> yeah, it's when it's like growth over everything, you, you mm. end up with things like what you said, like, oh, it improves at two, our returns 2%. So let's do this. But you don't think yeah. about what the trade-offs will be. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, thanks for that diversion. I, that was that was great. <laughs> yeah. But let's, before we get beyond it, let me just uh, get your background real quick. How do you get into programming? And I'm going to mix it up a little and machine learning. And, yeah, uh, this, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Do you want the long, the long story or the short story? How many minutes do I intermediate. have? Intermediate. Right. <laughs> intermediate. Intermediate. <laughs> so the, the intermediate story is that I started a, a company when I was in college, just like a college startup thing. And at the time was very limited in my programming knowledge. I had done some basic like HTML when I was a kid. I was really into like, like Counter-Strike and Call of Duty and, and oh yeah, yeah I would like sell up like private servers. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how I got into this, but would, would, well, I like rented these servers and I would like window, remote windows desktop into them and set up like private Counter-Strike servers and then sell those and set up like a basic website for it with HTML and CSS and and my brother was super into computers. So it was always kind of into computers. And then in college, got into startups and I think like programming and startups are like really connected. So through that, learned how to code, learned how to program, started attending Python meetups in Washington, DC, where I went to school. And that's how I met Matt Mackay, who we, who's a mutual, mm -hmm. mutual connection. Yeah. So attended a bunch of meetups, learned how to program and then got really into it. But I think what I found myself more interested in was the like more like meaty programming problems more like i guess like algorithm type problems and that kind of naturally yeah. led me to like machine learning and nlp and then kind of just like took off from there because i found that i was really interested in in machine learning and and um 
like at different NLP problems. Those are obviously the really hard ones. It, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> especially probably when was this that you were doing it? When or the this is maybe like 2013, 2014. Okay, yeah. So so I'm, kind of the early days of when that yeah that was becoming real, right? I remember feeling like all this AI and text to speech or speech to text rather type of stuff was very much. Uh, like fusion, like 30 years out, always 30. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. going to come eventually, but you know, people are doing weird stuff in Lisp and it doesn't seem to be doing much <laughs> yeah. of anything at all. You I know, and all some of a Perl, sudden, NLP, some like Perl scripts, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we end up with like amazing speech attacks. We end up with self-driving cars, like something clicked and it all came, yeah. came to life. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, especially over the last couple of years. I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the advances in like self-driving cars and NLP and speech to text, they're all based on similar machine learning algorithms. So, you know, like the transformer, right, which is like a really popular type of neural network that came out was initially applied towards like just NLP, like text language modeling related tasks. Now that's shown to be super powerful for speech as well. Whereas classical machine learning, there were still these underlying algorithms like support vector machines or you know, other, other types of underlying algorithms, but a lot of the work was around like the data. And so how can you extract better features for this type of data? And you had to be like, I, I remember when I was getting into speech recognition, I bought this speech recognition, like textbook. And this is yeah a while ago. And it was around like really understanding like phonemes and how different things are spoken and how the human speech is spoken. And now you don't need to know about that. You just get a bunch of audio data and you train these like big neural networks. They figure that out. Right. You wanted to understand British accents and American accents. You just give it a bunch give it of more data give it a mix, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, but it is, it is crazy to see where things have gotten over the last couple of years in particular. Yeah. So yeah, when I was starting out, neural networks were there, but they're a lot more basic and you didn't have, like, there's a lot more compute resources now, more mature libraries like TensorFlow and PyTorch. I think I, I went to like one of the first TensorFlow meetups that they had, uh, or not meetups, like developer days or whatever down at the Google conference. So it's, it's like so new still. Yeah. It's so new. Yeah. It's easy to forget. It is a while ago. It is. Yeah. That, that all this stuff didn't even exist. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned assembly, assembly AI. Yes. That's what you're doing these days, right? Yeah. So I am the founder of a company called assembly AI. We create APIs that can automatically transcribe and understand audio data. So we have APIs for automatic speech to text of audio files, live audio streams, and then APIs that can also summarize audio content, do content moderation on top of audio content, detect topics, what we call like audio intelligence APIs. And so we have a lot of startups and enterprises using our APIs to build the way we call it like applications on top of audio data, whether it's like content moderation of a social platform or speeding up workflows, like I'm sure you have where you take a podcast recording and transcribe it so you can make it more shareable or extract yeah. pieces of it to make it more shareable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Basically for me, it's a, a CLI command that runs Python <laughs> you, against your API, against a remote MP3 file, and then, you know, magic. That's the great thing about uh, podcast hosts. They're also programmers. Like I've talked to a few <laughs> exactly. and they're all like, there's a bunch that are non-programmers and they use these different services, but every podcast host that I've talked to that's a programmer, they have their own like CLIs and Python scripts that oh, they're yeah. running. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a whole series of just, you know, CLIs uh, I know. and other, other commands to, to do the workflow. Yeah. I do want to just give a quick statement, disclaimer. Yes. So if you go over to the transcripts or possibly, I suspect if you listen to the beginning of this episode, it'll say that it's sponsored by Assembly AI. This episode is not part of that sponsorship. This is just, you and I got to know each other. You're doing interesting stuff. You've been on some other shows that I've heard that the conversation was interesting. So invited you on. Thank you for sponsoring the show. But just to point out, this is not actually part of that. Yes. But with the transcripts that uh, we do have on the show the last year or so are basically generated from you guys, which is pretty cool. Yep, yep. And we don't even need to talk about assembly that much on this podcast. We can yeah. talk about other things. Yeah. So one of the things I want to talk about, and maybe what's on the screen here gives a little bit of a, a hint at being TensorFlow, is why do you think Python is popular for machine learning startups in general? Like I feel that I'm not as deep in that space as you, but it, from looking in from the outside, I guess I would say it feels very much like Python is the 
the primary way at which a lot of this machine learning stuff is done. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So like why that is outside of machine learning, even I think Python's just such a popular language because it's so easy to build with compared to like PHP or C sharp and like even JavaScript. Like when I learned to code, I started with Python because the syntax was easy to understand. There were a lot of good resources. And then there's kind of this like snowball effect where more people know Python. So there's more tutorials about Python. There's more libraries about Python and it's just more popular of a language. Yeah. This insight to be pulling this up. Yeah. This, if people uh, yeah, you know, yeah, talk look about at this, this yeah, a lot, right. Yeah, but if yeah. you pull up the stack overflow uh, trends for the most popular programming languages, there's only one that is going dramatically up out of right. what is this, 10 languages or something. It's just so much more popular. Yeah, it is. It's so interesting how it's really uh, sort of taken off. And it wasn't, you know, back in when you got started and when I got started back in this general area in 2012. It was the number one language then. The number one then was, what is that? C-sharp. C-sharp. But you got to keep in mind, this is a little bit of a... A historical bias of Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow was started by Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky, yeah. who came out of the .NET space. Okay. So when they created, like its initial traction was in C Sharp and VB, but over time, clearly it's become like where programmers go, obviously. So yeah. take that a bit with a grain of salt, but that that was the number one back in the early days. Other founder legacy decision. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. I, I agree that it's absolutely generally popular. And I think there's some interesting reasons for that. Yeah. It's just so approachable, but it's not a toy, right? A lot of approachable languages are toy languages and a lot of non-toy languages are hard to approach. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the Stack Overflow podcast. There are a few places more significant to software developers than Stack Overflow, but did you know they have a podcast? For a dozen years, the Stack Overflow podcast has been exploring what it means to be a developer and how the art and practice of software programming is changing our world. Are you wondering which skills you need to break into the world of technology or level up as a developer? Curious how the tools and frameworks you use every day were created? The Stack Overflow podcast is your resource for tough coding questions and your home for candid conversations with guests from leading tech companies about the art and practice of programming. From Rails to React, from Java to Python, the Stack Overflow podcast will help you understand how technology is made and where it's headed. Hosted by Ben Popper, Cassidy Williams, Matt Kiernender, and Sierra Ford, the Stack Overflow podcast is your home for all things code. You'll find new episodes twice a week wherever you get your podcast. Just visit talkpython.fm slash stackoverflow and click your podcast player icon to subscribe. And one more thing. I know you're a podcast veteran and you could just open up your favorite podcast app and search for the Stack Overflow podcast and subscribe there. But our sponsors continue to support us when they see results and they'll only know you're interested from TalkPython if you use our link. So if you plan on listening, do use our link, talkpython.fm slash stackoverflow to get started. Thank you to Stack Overflow for sponsoring the show. Yeah, like for me, it was it was very easy to get started with Python and I actually had... So I taught myself how to program. I went to college. I studied like economics. So I like did not study college in, or, or programming in college, computer science. And the first language I started to try to learn was PHP. And I bought this like huge PHP textbook and made it halfway through. And I was like, what is going on? I, I gave up and then tried again with Python later. And it was so much easier. And then I also wonder how much of this is like for the machine learning libraries in specific, like you have these macro trends where a lot of the data science boot camps that have been so popular, like there's like scikit-learn. I know we have a tab up there. There's mm-hmm. yeah, like NumPy and I forget what NLTK is one of the popular NLP libraries. So there are a lot of libraries in Python in the early, like, like when I was getting into NLP, I worked a lot with NLTK and like SciPy and scikit-learn and NumPy. And I think a lot of work was done around there. And so people that were doing data science or doing some type of machine learning were already in Python and and then now you have like PyTorch and TensorFlow and it's just like kind of cemented like, okay, the machine learning libraries today, the popular ones, they're, you work with them in Python. Yeah. You want to give us your, your thoughts on those? We've got TensorFlow and PyTorch and you know, probably Scikit-Learn as well. Those are the traditional ones. You've got yeah. some newer ones like Hugging Face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're a cool company. They're yeah. Cool company. Maybe give us a, a survey of how you see the, the different libraries, ML space and the libraries that people might choose from. So yeah. when we started the company, everything was in TensorFlow. When was that? Back in like late 2017. Okay. Yeah. Late 2017. Everything was in TensorFlow. And actually, I don't know what year PyTorch came out. 
I want, I don't even know if it was out back then, or maybe it was like just internally at Facebook. Yeah, it's pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So TensorFlow was definitely, they got started early. I think their docs and like the framework just got complicated over the years. And then I, they sort of rebooted with like TensorFlow 2.0 and then there was like Keras that was popular. It kind of got pulled in. Now I think like, so we switched everything over to PyTorch in the last like year or two. A big reason for that was that, and we actually put out this article on our blog comparing like PyTorch and TensorFlow. And we have this chart where we show like the percentage of papers that are released where the code for the paper is in PyTorch versus TensorFlow. And it's a huge, huge difference. Like most of the latest research gets implemented. Oh, yeah, here it is. If you go down to one of... So this is, yeah, hug, hugging face. Can you go keep going? Yeah, research papers. Yeah, go up to that one. Yeah. Okay. So it shows like the fraction of papers. And so what we're showing here for the people that are listening is like a graph that shows the uh, percentage of papers that are used built using PyTorch versus TensorFlow over time. Yeah. When you started, it was, what is this? Six, 7%? Yeah, uh, probably uh, 10%. PyTorch yeah. And the, the balance being TensorFlow right. when you started your company. Right. And now it's 75%. PyTorch. That's a it's a huge, a very large uh, change, really dramatic yeah. change. You know, PyTorch was a company. It'd be like, like probably raising <laughs> a lot of money. I think one of the reasons we picked PyTorch is because a lot of the newer research was being implemented in PyTorch first. There were examples in PyTorch, okay. and so it was easier to get. They have it on their it's their tagline, but to quote them, like from research to production, right? Like it was easier to get more exotic, advanced uh, neural networks into production and like actually start training models with those different types of layers or operations or loss functions that were released in these different papers. So we started using yeah. PyTorch and we kind of haven't looked back. Well, if you're ch tracking all the research and trying to build a cutting edge yeah. startup around ML, you don't want to wait for this to make its way to other frameworks. <laughs> yeah. You want to just grab it and go. So right. that's where the research is being done. That helps a lot, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You can get just get up and running a lot faster with the newer research. And so most companies that I talk to now, they're all using PyTorch. I think PyTorch is definitely like the more popular framework. There's some new ones coming out that have people excited, but still like from what I can sense, PyTorch is, if, if someone was going to get started today, I would tell them to start with PyTorch. Yeah. And I, I think okay. TensorFlow is also- Who, who runs yeah, PyTorch? Uh, I think Sorry, it's- who runs PyTorch? It's released by Facebook, right? Yeah. And then TensorFlow, that's Google, Google right? Google, yeah. Yeah, and I think Google's tried to like, tie TensorFlow into their like cloud ML products. So like train your models on Google cloud and sure. like use their TPUs in the cloud. And there's probably some like business cases behind that, but I feel like it may have made the developer experience worse because it's trying to like get back to Google. Whereas, you know, PyTorch isn't trying to like get you to train your models on Facebook cloud or something. Yeah. What's the story with hugging face? This is uh, people probably wouldn't use Facebook cloud if that existed nowadays. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if you'd want to host your data in Meta Cloud. You Meta Cloud now. Yeah, Meta Cloud. Yeah. You can only do it in VR. Yeah. What's the story with hugging face? So hugging face is a cool so this is a company actually. And they have it's kind of hard to even explain. It's like you can basically get access to a bunch of different pre-trained models really quickly through hugging face. And so if you want to a lot of work around NLP now is like how familiar are you with like self-supervised learning or like mm. base models for NLP? How familiar are with that? Somewhat. So the idea is to have a like a general model and then apply some sort of transfer learning to build up a more specialized one without training from scratch. Is that exactly? Yeah, and that, and that general model is is really just trained to like learn representations of the data. It's not even really trained like with us our particular like NLP task. It's just like trained to learn representations of data. And then with those representations that it learns, you can then say like, okay, you know, I'm going to train you towards this specific task with some labeled data in a supervised manner. And so there are some really popular open source, like base models, foundation models, like BERT is one, there's a bunch of others, but you can easily get like, like load up BERT basically and fine tune it on your data with hugging face. So if you're trying to get a model a model up and running quickly in like the NLP, like the text domain, you can do that pretty easily with hugging face. And okay. Yeah. So Interesting. It's, it's less like if you want to like build your own neural network from scratch, like inputs to outputs, implement your own loss function, all that, you do that in PyTorch. If you want to try to just like quickly fine tune BERT for a specific task that you're trying to solve, you could still go like the PyTorch route, but it would just be faster to go with hugging face. So they see, they've seen a lot of adoption 
there. And then Scikit-Learn is kind of like the the old school library that's been around forever with like the the OG, the yeah, OG, sure. yeah. Like if you want to do stuff with like support vector machines or random forest or like KDRS neighbors, you know, this Scikit-Learn is is uh, probably still really popular in that for, for those yeah. different use cases. I do think that I hear the Scikit-Learn being used quite a bit still. Yeah, it's maybe in the research, the academic. If you go take a course on it, you know, probably there's a lot of stuff on this, I would guess. Yeah, like there's a lot of times where, I mean, you don't really need to build a neural network. I mean, there's parts of our stack that are like basic machine learning, like statistical models. And if you can get away with it, it's a lot easier to train and you don't need as much data and it's easier to deploy. So like re- a lot of like recommendation type models or, and sometimes yeah. SVMs are just like good enough. SVM support vector machines are just good enough for for a task that you might want to have. So for a, a lightweight Netflix recommendation or YouTube recommendation, not like the high end stuff that I'm sure they're actually doing. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that kind of recommendation engine. Yeah. Something, yeah, something basic. Yeah. Although I actually am kind of underwhelmed with like the Netflix and YouTube, and YouTube recommendations are very good. Yeah. Netflix recommendations and like prime recommendations I'm kind of underwhelmed by. You would think that you watch. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's still so hard to find things to watch sometimes on those platforms. It is. And YouTube, interestingly, seems to have an end. So if you scroll down through YouTube, like 10 pages, it, it'll start showing you like, well, it seems like we're out of options. Here, we'll show you 10 from this one channel, and then we'll just kind of stop. You're like, I know you got a lot of videos. You could just keep recommending stuff. I'm pretty sure if I, if you would keep recommending it, there's stuff down here. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's It's interesting. I feel like it's gotten better too. Like my YouTube consumption has really picked up over the last year, I would say. Their recommendation algorithms, and I don't know if it's just more content being created or maybe it's just like a personal thing for me. And there was some thing on Hacker News too about like YouTube comments that like one of the founders of Stripe posted are like generally very positive and like there was, there's really good comments on YouTube too. So they, they've definitely also come up with ways to classify comments as being high value or not, and then put mm-hmm. those on top. And nowadays those, those models are definitely used with something like for some big neural networks some transformer. Yeah. Cause those neural networks, they're so much better at understanding context and like SVMs, you have to still for a lot of these classical machine learning approaches, like feed it hand labeled data. And, but the, the neural networks, yeah, they, they're really good for those language tasks now. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher out in the audience has a question. That's kind of interesting. Does it make sense to start with scikit-learn if, for example, you're trying to predict when a production machine is not out of tolerance yet is trending to be? Is that like guy? Uh, like if you were like monitoring like a, a data center for maybe VMs. Like your, your I'm guessing. RAM or like memory is going high or some statistic is like predictive that this VM will probably go down. Failure is coming. Failure is coming. Yeah. And the question was, is it SVM or scikit-learn good to start with? Yeah, I would actually probably say that's that's where you want to go with something like scikit-learn because there's probably very clear-cut patterns. I would say if you're you're unsure of what the pattern is, then a neural network is good because the neural network can, in theory, like you're feeding it raw data and it's learning the pattern. But if you know what the pattern is, like, okay, like there's probably like these signals that if a human was just sitting there looking at it all day, would be able to tell this system is probably going to go down, then you just can train a SVM or some type of classical machine learning model with scikit-learn to be able to do those predictions with pretty high accuracy. And then if you've got a super lightweight model, you don't need much training data to train it because you're not trying to build something that's like super generalizable to like all systems or like all AWS instances. It's probably something unique to your, your system. But I would say that's kind of where the difference is. And then it's a lot easier too, because with if you're trying to build like a neural net, it's like, well, what type, how many layers, what, you know, kind of like optimization schedule, like learning rate. There's all these hyperparameters and things you have to figure out. You still have to do that too for classical machine learning to a degree. But if your problem's not that difficult, it's not as, you know, like fancy nowadays, but it gets the job done. Yeah. I suspect you could come up with some predictors and then like monitor them for in this model, whereas opposed to here's an image that is a breast scan, does it have cancer or not? Right. Like exactly. We don't even really know what we're looking for, but there probably is a pattern that could be, you know, pulled out by a neural network. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. And, you know, like we're trying to build some predictive scaling for our API right now because, you know, one of the problems with or challenges of a startup that's doing machine learning in production is, you know, we deploy like hundreds of GPUs and thousands of CPU cores into production every day at peak load. And 
you have to be able to scale to demand. And if you overscale at that like size, then there's just huge costs that come with that. If you underscale, there's bad performance for end users. And so we've done a ton of work around like auto scaling and trying to optimize models and production and things like that. And now we're trying to do some predictive scaling. And for that, for example, we'd probably do something super simple with like scikit-learn. We wouldn't do a, a neural net for that. Yeah, the scaling sounds like solving a basically a, a similar issue. Yeah, yeah. As understanding failure, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The, the lack of scaling sometimes is kind of, <laughs> the result is failure. So <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're somewhat related together. Yeah. All right, you talked about uh, like running stuff in production and there's obviously two aspects for machine learning companies and startups and teams and products that are very different than say the kind of stuff I do, right? Like I've got APIs that are running, we've got mobile apps, we've got people taking the courses, but all right. of that stuff, there is like one, it's always the same, right? right. It's, we put stuff up and people will use it and consume it and so on. But for you all, you've got the the training and almost the R&D side of things that you've got to worry about working on and scaling. And right. then you've got the productionizing. So you know, maybe tell us a little bit about how you, like, what do you guys use for for both parts for training? Yeah. yeah, like maybe start with the training side. Yeah, the training side, it's basically like impossible to use the big clouds for that because it would just be prohibitively expensive, at least for what we do. So we train like these huge neural nets for speech recognition and different NLP tasks. And, you know, we're training them across like 4864 GPUs, like really powerful GPUs. I've got the GeForce uh, 3090, which is a <laughs> yeah. beast up here. Like, what do you know what kind you're using? Yeah. So we use a lot of V100s, um, like A100s. And mm. we rent, basically, what we do is we rent dedicated machines from provider. And each machine, we're able to like pick the specs that we want, like how many GPUs, what cards, how much RAM, what kind of CPU we want on there. So we're able to to pick the specs that we want. Mm -hmm. And we found that that's been the best way to, to do it because the big clouds, yeah, if you're running like a dozen, dozens of GPU, like of the most expensive types of GPUs for like weeks on end, you could do that if you had like one training run you wanted to do. But a lot of times you have to train a model halfway through, it doesn't work well, you have to restart or finish this training and the results are not that good and you learn something, so you have to go back and start over. And now what we're doing is buying a bunch of our own compute. Like my, my dream is to have some closet somewhere with just like, you know, tons of GPUs and like our own like mini data center for the R&D because if things yeah. go down, you know, like when you're training a model, you checkpoint it as you go. So if your program crashes or your server crashes, like you can resume training. Whereas like for production workloads, we use AWS for that because things can't go down. And I don't think we'd want to take on our own competency of like hosting our own production infrastructure. But, but for the R&D right. stuff, you know, we have, we are looking into just buying a ton versus renting because it'd be a lot more, it'd be a lot more cost efficient. And you can, instead of basically like paying each year for the same compute, you just like buy it once and then you just pay for the electricity and server hosting costs and maintenance costs that come with that. Yeah. yeah. Now maybe find a big office building and offer to heat it for free in the winter by just running it on the inside. There's this like, uh, <laughs> you know, you can run like NVIDIA SMI. I don't know if you play around with GPUs at all, but like you can see what the temperature is of the GPU. And like, sometimes, you know, if I'm, I remember a while ago when I was training some of these models, I would just like, look at what the temperature is during training and they had to get so hot and these data centers have to have all this, all these special cooling infrastructure to keep the machines down. It's pretty environmentally unfriendly. Yeah. To the extent that some of them, yeah, to the extent that people are creating, um, underwater yeah. data center, like nodes and putting them down there and just letting the, the ocean be the heat sink. Yeah, that's crazy. You can buy some land in like, you know, Antarctica and, and uh, put our stuff there. That's where like the GitHub, yeah. um, like the Arctic Code thing. I forget what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. The um, Arctic Code Vault. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we could do something like that for our GPUs. When we get bigger, that's that's <laughs> the dream. That's where like my nerd out there you dream. Go. <laughs> so yeah, so we train, I think we have a, like, I think somewhere like maybe like 200 like GPUs that we use just for R&D and training and we're getting a lot more. Because you don't want to be, a lot of times there's like scheduling bottlenecks. So two researchers want to run a model and need a bunch of compute to be able to do that. And they're both good ideas. You don't want to have to like wait four weeks for someone to run their their model because compute is taken. So we're trying to unblock those scheduling conflicts by just getting more compute. Yeah. And for the production side, yeah, we deploy everything in AWS right now and onto like smaller GPUs. Because a lot of our models do inference on GPU still. 
some of our models do inference on CPU. Oh, interesting. Yeah. To to evaluate the stuff, it still uses GPUs yeah, even correct. after the models are created. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's we could run it on CPU, but it's just not as parallelizable as running it on GPUs. There's a lot of work that we could probably do to get it really efficient so that, you know, we're running it on like as few CPU cores as possible. But it, one of the problems is like almost like every like three to four months, we're like throwing out the current neural network architecture and using a different one that is giving us better results. Like sometimes we'll make the model bigger or there'll be a small tweak in the model architecture that yields better results. But a lot of times it's like, okay, we've kind of iterated within this architecture as much as we can. And now to get the next accuracy bump, we have to go to a new architecture. We're undergoing that right now. We released our one of our like newer speech recognition models. We released, I think like three months ago. And the results are really good, but now we have one that is looking a lot better and it'd be like a completely different architecture. And so it's just that trade-off of, do you spend a bunch of time optimizing the current model that you have and trying to like prune the neural network and do all these optimizations to get it really small? Or do you just spend that research effort and that energy focused on finding the next accuracy gain? And because we're trying to win customers and grow our revenue, it's just, all right, let's just focus on the next model. And when we have a big enough team or when we can focus on it, we'll work, we'll work on making the models smaller and more compute efficient and less costly to run. But right now, yeah, like, like our speech recognition model that does inference on a GPU. There's a couple of our like NLP related models, like our content moderation model that does uh, inference on a GPU. And then there's like our automatic punctuation and casing restoration model, like that runs on a CPU because that's not as compute intense. And so it really okay. varies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting to think about how you're optimizing the software stack and the algorithms and, and the libraries and, and whatnot. You know, when you're not doing something that's changing so quickly, you know, if it's working, you can kind of just leave it alone. Right. right? Like right. I've got some APIs. I think they're built either in Pyramid or Flask. Sure, it'd be nicer to rebuild them in fast API, but they're working fine. I'm just like I have no reason to touch right, them. Right. So there's not a like a huge step jump I'm going to take. They're not under extreme load or anything, right? This portion of Talk Pythonomy is brought to you by Sentry. How would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be encountering errors, slowdowns, or crashes with your app right now? Would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the error or performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? With Sentry, this is not only possible, it's simple. In fact, we use Sentry on all the TalkPython web properties. We've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. And that was a great email to write back. Hey, we already saw your error and have already rolled out the fix. Imagine their surprise. Surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at talkpython.fm slash Sentry. And if you sign up with the code TalkPython, all one word, it's good for two free months of Sentry's business plan, which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events as well as other features. Create better software, delight your users, and support the podcast. Visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and use the coupon code TalkPython. But in your world, right, the out, there's so much innovation happening around the models that you do have to think about that. So how, how do you work that trade-off? How do you like, well, could we get more out of what we've got or should we abandon it and start over, right? Because yeah. it's something, it is nice to have a very polished and well-known thing as well. Definitely. And every time you throw out our architecture and implement a new architecture, you've now got to figure out how to run that architecture at scale. And you don't want to have any hiccups for your current customers or users mm -hmm. of your API, which sometimes happens because these models are so big that you can't just write this like monolith service that like sits on a GPU and does everything. Like you have to break it up into a bunch of component parts to let it, so that you can run it efficiently at scale. So there's like eight, nine microservices for like a single model because you break out like, okay, all these different parts and try to get it running really efficiently in parallel. But it does beg the question of like, how do you build good CI CD workflows and good DevOps mm -hmm. workflows to get models into production quickly? And this is something that we're working on right now and trying to solve like, because a lot of times we have better models and we sit on them for like two, three weeks because to get them into staging, we have to do load testing, see, does anything with scaling have to change because the model profile is different? 
Are there any weird edge cases that we didn't check or, or, or see during testing? So it slows down the rate of, of development because you have, it's, it's hard to do CICD. It's not like you just, okay, run this test, run these tests, the code works, go. There's like compute profile changes that happen. And so maybe you need a different instance type or you need to. Right. It uses less CPU, but way more RAM. So if you actually deploy exactly. it, it's going to crash or something. Okay. Exactly. And then doing that at scale, you have to, you know, like profile out and do load testing. And so really we're trying to figure out how to get these models into production faster. And I think the whole like ML ops world is so in its infancy, you know, around things like that. And it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. So for us, the trade-off though, is always like, you know, our customers and developers, they just want better results and always more accurate results. And so we just always are working on pushing our models, making them more accurate. If we can iterate within a current architecture, great. Like sometimes you can just make the model bigger or make a small change and then you get a lot of accuracy improvements. And it's just like what we call like a drop-in update where no code changes. It's just literally like the model that you're loading is just different. And then it's just more accurate. Right. That's easy. Yeah. That's the dream. You know, it's just a, a drop-in. But that's maybe like 30% of updates, like the other 70% are, okay, you've got a new architecture or it's got a pretty different compute profile. So it uses a lot more RAM or it's a lot slower to load in the beginning. So we need to scale earlier because instances come online later and become healthy later. So there's all these like things you have to think about. Yeah. The the whole uh, DevOps side of this sounds way more interesting and involved than I. Yeah, yeah, it's painful too. I mean, we're like, I can't, explain how many like graphs we have in Datadog, just like monitoring things all day. And, <laughs> like how luckily I don't have to work on that anymore. That was very stressful when I was like owning the infrastructure. Yeah. Now we have people that are better at it than me. We had like two DevOps yeah. people start on Monday, but yeah, like DevOps is a huge, huge piece of this. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah. I do want to just circle back to one real quick thing. You talked about buying your own GPUs for training and people might out there be thinking like, who would want to go and get their own hardware in the day of AWS, yeah. node, whatever, right? Like it just seems crazy. But there's certainly circumstances. Like here's here's an example that I recently thought about. So there's a place called Max Stadium where you can get Max in the cloud. Hey. How cool, right? So maybe you want to have like something you could do with extra things. And well, what does it cost? Well, for a Mac Mini M1, it's $132 a month. You think that's, a, is that high or low? <laughs> well, the whole device, if you were to buy it, costs $700, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's and I suspect that even though the GPUs are expensive, there's probably something where like if you really utilize it extensively, right. it actually makes to buy it. It stops making sense in in ways that people might not expect. Yeah, that to buy it, you mean, right? Like it stops making yeah, yeah. sense to rent it. Yeah, that's what we're facing. It stops making sense to rent it in the cloud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spent a crazy amount of money renting GPUs in the cloud, and it's like okay, you know, if we had a bunch of money to make a you know, CapEx purchase, right? Like just shell out a bunch of money to buy a bunch of hardware up front. It'd be so much better in the long run because it is similar to the example you made about like, if you don't have a lot of cash, then you're only going to use a Mac for a couple months. Right. You need it for two weeks, then it doesn't make sense to buy it. Great. Yeah, you just, you pay the hundred dollars and you're good right, to go. Right. Or if you don't have like 2K and, you yeah. know, then, yep. then you just rent it. And it's like, you know, if you don't have the money to buy a house, you rent an apartment, right? Like things like that. So there are definitely benefits. And I think for a lot of, I think for most models, you don't need crazy compute. Like you could get away with like, you could buy a desktop device that has like two GPUs or you could rent a dedicated machine or still do it on AWS if you're using like one or two GPUs and it wouldn't be insane. So if you're just starting out, all those options are fine. But if you're trying to do like big models and or train a bunch in parallel, you need more compute and... um Definitely doesn't make sense to use the big clouds for that. There's a bunch of dedicated providers that you can rent like dedicated machines from and just pay a monthly fee, regardless of how much you use it. And uh, it's a lot more, it's a lot more efficient for like companies to do that. Interesting. Give me your thoughts on sort of CapEx versus OpEx for ML startups rather than, I don't know, it's some other SaaS service that doesn't have such computational stuff, you know, being CapEx being you got to buy a whole bunch of machines and GPUs and stuff versus OpEx and like, well, it's going to cost this much to run in the cloud. Like, I feel like it's crazy. Things are more possible because you can get the stuff in the cloud, prove an idea and then get investors without going, well, you know, let's go to friends and family and get 250,000 for GPUs. And if it doesn't work, we'll just do Bitcoin. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, we started in the cloud, right? So, like first models we trained were K80s on K80s and AWS. So 
took like a month to train. Wow. Yeah, it was terrible. So we started in the cloud. And then now that we're fortunate to have like more investment in the company, we can make these CapEx purchases. But yeah, I mean, the operating expenses of running an ML startup are also like crazy, like payroll and GP and payroll and like AWS are our biggest expenses because you run so much compute and it's super expensive. And what I talk about and what we talk about is like, there's nothing fundamental about what we're doing that makes that the case. It's just goes back to that point of like, do you spend a couple months optimizing your models, bringing compute costs down, or do you just focus on the new architecture and kind of pay your way to get to the future? It's like this growth versus, yeah. And then we're like a yeah. venture back company. So like there's expectations around our growth and you know, all that. So we just focus on like, okay, let's just get to the next milestone and not focus too much on like bringing those costs down because there's the opportunity cost of doing that, but yeah. eventually we'll have yeah. to. Yeah. It's a, uh... A little bit of the ML equivalent of sort of the the growth. You can lose money to just gather Grow, yeah. users. <laughs> yeah, 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 right? But this yeah. is the uh, the sort of gain it ca is. capabilities, right? It is. Yeah, it is 100%. And, and then you'll figure out how to do it efficiently once you yeah. kind of find your way. Okay. And I'll give you a, like a tangible example. I mean, like we've been adding a lot of customers and developers on the API and there's always like new scaling problems that come up. And sometimes we're just like, look, let's just scale the whole system up going to be inefficient. There's going to be waste, but like, let's scale it up and then we'll like fine tune the auto scaling to bring it down over time yeah. versus like having to step into like a more perfect auto scaling scenario that wouldn't cost as much, but there'd be bumps along the way. And so we just like scaled everything up recently to buy us time to go work on figuring out how to improve some of these like Auto scaling. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You could spend two weeks trying to figure out the right way to go to production, or you could spend just more money. Exactly. Work and and then because you you might not be sure with the like the multiple month life cycle of right. some of these things. Right. Is this actually going to be the way we want to stick with? So let's not spend two weeks optimizing it first. Right. Very interesting. And I mean, like, look, not every company can make that decision. Like, if you are bootstrapped or you're trying to get off the ground, which like a lot of companies are. You do have to make those. You can't just pay your way to the future. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of uh, bootstrapped yeah. companies and, and, and finding your way. I, I don't think that necessarily just, you know, set a ton of money on fire. <laughs> right. Is the only way forward. But if you have backers already, then they would prefer you to move faster, I suspect. Correct. Yeah, correct. Correct. Like I always was self-conscious about our, you know, operating costs as an ML company, because they're high compared to other SaaS companies where yeah. you don't have heavy compute. But you know, the, the investors we work with, they get that like, okay, this isn't, there's nothing like that fundamental about this that requires those costs to be high. You just have to spend time on bringing them down. And it's, it, there's yeah. like a cl clear path. It's not like Uber where it's like the path to bring costs down or like self-driving cars because it's expensive yeah. to employ humans. That's like, you know, so far down the road. Yeah. But for us, it's like, okay, we need to just spend three months making these models more efficient and uh, they'll run a lot cheaper, but it's that trade-off. But I, yeah. I love bootstrap companies too. I mean, it's just a different way to do it. Something special about like, you're actually making a profit and you're actually, you have customers and- No one to answer to. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the freedom for sure. Yeah. So uh, you probably saw me mess around with the screen here to pull up this Raspberry Pi thing. Uh, there's a question out in the audience that says, could you do this kind of stuff on a Raspberry Pi? And like a standard Raspberry Pi, I suspect absolutely no. But yeah. have you ever seen that there are water-cooled Raspberry Pi clusters? Whoa, I have not these things? seen that. That is crazy. Is that insane? That's insane. So <laughs> what kind of compute are they getting on that? It's pretty comparable to a MacBook Pro on this. That's crazy. Got, what, eight water-cooled Raspberry Pis in a cluster. And it's really an amazing device. But if you look back at a, you know, you sort of consider it like a, a single PC with a, in you know a, a basic NVIDIA card or a, a MacBook Pro or something like that. Like that's still pretty far from what you guys need. Like how many GPUs did you say you were using to train your models? It's like hundred, yeah, like sixty four for the bigger ones. Yeah, in parallel. Yeah, yeah. These are not small GPUs. I don't think so I suspect that would work. I'm gonna maybe throw it out there for you and say probably no. Maybe for the scikit learn type stuff, but not for what you're doing. Not the TensorFlow PyTorch. Yeah, not for not for training. But you could do inference on a Raspberry Pi. Like you could yeah. squeeze a model down super tiny, like what they do to get some models onto your phones and run that on a Raspberry Pi. 
if you get the model small enough, the accuracy might not be great, but like you could do it. Yeah. Oh, so there's a lot of stuff happening around the edge. Like, I think a lot of that Siri. Yeah, the edge compute, the sort of ML on device type stuff. Like a lot of the speech recognition on your phone now happens on device. Yeah. Yeah, and not in the cloud. Yeah, sort of related to this, like the new um, M1 chips and the, right. and even the chips in the Apple phones before then come with like neural engines built in, like multi-core neural engines. Right. Interesting for edge stuff again, but not really gonna, not really gonna uh, let you do like the training and stuff yeah. like that, right? I haven't done much iOS development but I know there's like SDKs now to kind of like get your neural networks like on device and make use of these, like the hardware on the phone. And definitely if you're trying to deploy your stuff on the edge, there's a lot more resources available to you now. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's a really good experience because having, you know, you speak to your assistant or, or you do something and it says thinking, thinking like, okay, well that, I don't want that. Like, I'll just go do it if I got to wait 10 right. seconds. Right. Yeah. But it happens immediately. And there's the privacy aspect too of. Yeah. Absolutely. The privacy is great. Yeah. Like the yeah. wake word on the, like, I don't know if you know this, but like the wake words, like on the Alexa device, like they happen local, that runs locally. Although I've heard, I've heard that when you say Alexa, they verify it in the cloud with a more powerful model. Interesting. Cause sometimes it'll trigger and then shut off. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen. Yeah. It's, you, it'll spin around and go, ah, no, that wasn't right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think what's happening is that they're sending what they're sending, like the wake word to the cloud to verify, like, did you actually say Alexa? Probably the local yeah. models below some certain confidence level, it sends it up to the cloud and then the cloud verifies like, yes, start, start processing. But it is much faster from a latency perspective. Although with, with 5G, I don't know if like mobile internet is so much it's faster now. It's getting pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I'll be somewhere my Wi-Fi is slow and I'll just tether my phone and it's like faster. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. If I'm not at my house, I usually do that. If I go to a, a coffee shop or an airport, I'm like, there's a very low chance that the Wi-Fi here is better than my 5G yeah. tethered. Yeah. So I'm exactly. Do that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Chuck Woody out in the audience has a real interesting question, I think, uh, that you can speak to because you're in this space right now, living it, you know, what do investors look at when considering an AI startup or maybe an AI startup, not just specifically speech to text? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it really depends on like, are you building like a vertical application that makes use of AI? So you're building some like call center optimization software where there's like AI under the hood, but you're, you're using it to power this like business use case versus are you building some like, like infrastructure AI company? Like we're us, like we're building APIs for speech to text, or if you're building a company that's exposing like APIs for NLP or different types of tasks, I think it varies what they look at. I am not an expert in like fundraising or AI startups. I want to make that very clear. Like, so, so maybe don't take my advice too, too seriously. Yeah. But you've done it successfully, which is, yeah. I mean, there are people who claim to be experts, but are not currently running, <laughs> you know, a successful backed company. So sure, I, sure. I wouldn't put too much of a caveat there. Yeah. I, mean, I think we just got lucky with, the, you know, meeting some of the right people that have helped us. But I think it's like, yeah, you know, are you, are you doing something innovative on the model side? Do you, do you have some innovation on the architecture side? I actually don't really think the whole like data vote is that strong of an argument personally. Because there's just so much data on the internet now. And data moat being like, we run Gmail so we can scan everybody's email. That gives us a, a competitive advantage. Of yeah. Some, yeah. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, actually, I, I don't know. Like you might get like a slight advantage, but there's so much data on the internet and there's so many, there's so many innovations happening around. Like look at, look at GPT-3 that OpenAI put out, right? That was just trained on like crazy amount, a huge model trained on crazy amounts of public domain data on the internet works so well across so many different tasks. So even if you had a data mode for a specific task, like it's arguable that GPT-3 could beat you at that task. So I think it depends what you're doing, but I don't personally buy into the whole data mode thing that much, you know, cause like even for us, we're able to build some of the best speech to text models in the world. And we don't have this like secret source of data. You know, we, we just have a lot of innovation on the model side and there's tons of domain data in the public domain that you can access now. So I think it's really about like, are you building some type of application that is making the lives of like a customer or developer, some startup like easier leveraging AI? Right. Are you solving a problem solving a that problem. people will yeah. pay money to solve? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I actually think it's more about like the distribution of the tech you're building versus the tech itself. So like, are you packaging it up in an easy to use API or is like the 
imagine you're selling something to like podcast hosts that uses AI. I mean, the AI could be amazing, but if like the user interface sucks, you know, like yeah. you're, you're not going to use Here's what it. you do. You're going to make a post request over to this and you put this header in and like, it's going to like, here's how you do paging and like, no, no, here's the library in your language. You call the one function, things right. happen, right? Like how presentable or uh, right. straightforward do you make it, right? Right. Because I actually think that's a huge piece of it. Are you, are you making it easier? Are you making is the distribution around the technology you're creating like really powerful and and uh like do you have good ideas around that so I, I think it's a combination of those things but to be honest i think really depends on what you're building and what the product is or what you're doing because it varies like really it varies sure. a lot yeah there's also the part that we as developers don't love to think about but the marketing and awareness and growth and traction Right. Yeah. It's you could say, look, here's the most amazing model we have. Well, we haven't actually got any users yet, but like, right. that is a really hard sell for investors unless they absolutely see, you know, this has huge potential. Right. Yeah. But if you're like, look, we've got this much monthly number of users, and here's the way we're going to start to up, you know, create a premium offering. And yeah, yeah. Right. That that's something we're not particularly skilled at as developers, but that's a non-trivial part of any tech startup, right? Oh yeah. And I think as a developer too, you kind of like shy away from wanting to work on that because it's so much easier to just write code or build a new feature versus like go solve this hard marketing problem or go like right, write marketing this. sales, like you yeah. gotta have them, even if you're bad at them and <laughs> yeah. you don't like it. Yeah. We're fortunate that we get to market to developers. So like I enjoy it, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, cause you get like to talk to developers all the time. But yeah, that's a huge piece of it too. Definitely. Definitely. It's yeah. It's got to all come together. Yeah. This up a little bit. We're getting sort of near the end, but let's talk about you've got this idea, you've got your models, you've got your libraries, you've trained them up using your GPUs. Now you want to offer it as an API. Like how do you go to production with a machine learning model and do something interesting? You want to talk about how that's worked? I know you talked a little bit about running the cloud and, and whatnot, but yeah. you know, do you offer it as an API over Flask or yeah. do you run it in a cloud? Like, what are you doing there? Are they Lambda functions? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. What, what's your world look like? So we have uh, asynchronous APIs where you send in an audio file and then we send you a webhook when it's done processing. And then we have real-time APIs over WebSocket where you're streaming audio and you're getting stuff back over a WebSocket in real time. The real-time stuff's a lot more challenging to build, but the, sure the, yeah, the, the async stuff, really what happens is we have like, so one of our main APIs was built in Tornado. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Legacy, legacy. The early, early async yeah. enabled Python web framework before async IO was officially a thing. Yep. So I built the first version of the API in Tornado. So it's kind of like still in Tornado for that reason. A lot of the newer mm -hmm. things are newer microservices are built flat, uh, fast API or Flask. And so for the asynchronous API, what happens is like you're making a post request. The API is really just like a CRUD app. It's storing a record of the request that you made with all the parameters that you turned on or turn off. And then that goes into a database. Some worker that's like the orchestrator is constantly looking at that database and it's like, okay, there's some new work to be done. And then kicks off all these different jobs to all these different microservices, some over queues, some over HTTP collects everything back, orchestrates, like what could be done in parallel, what depends on what to be done first. When that's all done, all the kind of asynchronous, like background jobs, the orchestrator pushes the final result back into our primary database. And then that triggers you getting a webhook with the final result. So that's like, in a nutshell, kind of what the architecture looks like for the asynchronous workloads. There's like tons of different microservices, all with different instance types and different like compute requirements, some GPU, some CPU, some, you know, like all different scaling policies. And that's really where the hard part is. That's kind of like the basic overview of how the asynchronous stuff works in production. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Are you seeing um, Postgres or MySQL or something like that? Postgres for the primary DB. Because we're on AWS, we use DynamoDB for a couple of things like ephemeral records we need to keep around for when you send something in, it goes to DynamoDB. And that's where we like keep track of basically like your request and what parameters you add on and off. And that kicks off a bunch of things. But the primary DB is Postgres. Yeah, I think there's like, at this point, like it's getting pretty large. <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> there's like a few billion records in there because we, yeah. we process like a couple million audio files a day with the API. Wow. Sometimes I'll read on Hacker News like these, I think like GitHub went down at one point because they couldn't incre increment the primary key values any higher. 
it's in 64 is overflowing we're done yeah yeah <laughs> something like that yeah i'm in the back of my mind like i hope we're thinking about something like that because that would be re really bad yeah. if we came up against something like that do you store the the audio content no. in the database or, or do they go in like some kind of bucket some object storage thing so we're unique in that we don't store a copy of your audio data okay for privacy reasons for you so you send something yeah. in it's a, a stored ephemerally like in the memory of the machine that's processing your file. And then what's stored is the transcription text encrypted at rest because you need to be able to make a get request for the API to fetch it. But then you can follow up with a delete request to permanently delete the transcription text from our database as well. So we try to like keep no record of the data that you're processing because like we want to be really privacy, privacy focused and sensitive. You can like some customers will toggle on that we keep some of their data to continuously improve the models. But by default, we don't store anything. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's good for privacy. It's also good for you all because there's just less stuff that you have to be nervous about when you're trying to fall asleep. You're like, what if somebody broke in and got all the audio? Oh, wait, we don't have the audio. Okay, so that's not a thing they could get. Yeah. Anyway, like things like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that before, but I'm imagining now what that would be like. Well, now I'm making, now you're going to be nervous because there's probably other stuff, but that's all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, now you got me thinking of that in that space. <laughs> like, what are those things we need to lock up? Now, we, we have yeah, like, exactly. we're mostly a team of engineers. So I think of the 30 people, like 70% are engineers with a lot of more experience than me. So we're, we're doing all everything like by the book, especially yeah, with cool. the business that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. All right, Dylan, I think we're, out of time, if not out of topic. So let's maybe wrap this up a little bit with the final two questions and some packages and stuff. So if you're going to work on some Python code, what editor are you using these days? I'm still using Sublime. Right on. Do you, what do you One use? The, the OG easy ones. I'm I'm mostly PyCharm. If I yeah. want to just open a single file and look at it, I'll probably use VS Code for that. That's probably just, you know, I want to open that thing, not have all the project ideas around it, but mm -hmm. if I'm, I'm doing proper work, probably PyCharm these days. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, notable PyPI projects, some library out there. I mean, you've already talked about it, like TensorFlow and some others, but anything out there you're like, oh, we should we should definitely check this out. I would check out Hugging Face if you haven't yet. It's a pretty, pretty cool yeah. library. Yeah, pretty cool library. Yeah, Hugging Face seems like a really interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to one as well that I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen PLS, please, as a, an LS replacement? I just no. read, Chris May told me about this yesterday, told me and Brian. For Python bytes, check this out. So it's a new LS that has like icons and it's all developer focused. So like wow. if you've got a virtual environment, it'll show that separately. If you've got a an Python file, it has a Python icon. The things that appear in the list are controlled somewhat by the git ignore file and other things like that. And you can even do like a, a more detailed listing where it'll show like the git status of the various files. Isn't that crazy? That's really cool. Yeah. That's yeah, really so cool. That's a Python library, PLS. PLS. That's awesome. I'll people check that one out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People can check that out. Yeah. All right, Dylan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really cool to get this look into running ML stuff yeah. in production and whatnot. Thanks for having us, me uh, on. A final call. Yeah, you bet. You want to give us a final call to action? People are interested in sort of maybe doing an ML startup or even if they want to do things with assembly AI. If you want to check out our APIs for automatic speech to text, you can go to our website, assemblyai.com, get a free API token. You don't have to talk to anyone. You can start playing around. There's a lot of Python code samples that you can grab to get up and running pretty quickly. And then, yeah, if you're interested in ML startups, I think that like one of the things that I always recommend is if you want to go like the uh, funding route, definitely check out Y Combinator as a place to apply because that really helped us get off the ground. They help you out with like a lot of credits around GPUs and resources and it helps a lot. That helped us a lot. So were you in the 2017 yeah, cohort 20, or something like that? Yeah, 2017. So um, was super yeah. helpful and I would highly recommend that. There's also just a big community of other like ML people that you can get access to through that. So that really helped and I would I would recommend people check that out. Uh, how about if I don't want to go oh, one PC more. funded? Yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah, so one more is... Uh, there's also uh, like an online accelerator called Pioneer. I don't know if you've heard of this, but that's also a good one to, to check out too. If you don't want to go the accelerator route, then I would say like, yeah, really it's just about getting a model working good enough to like close your first customer and then just like keep iterating, you know? So like don't get caught up in like reaching state of the art or yeah, like in the research, just like kind of think of like the MVP model that you need to build to go win your first customer and then kind of keep going from there. Yeah, awesome. 
All right. Well, thanks for sharing all your experience and for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Yeah, you bet. Cool. It was. Bye. Right, bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. For over a dozen years, the Stack Overflow podcast has been exploring what it means to be a developer and how the art and practice of software programming is changing the world. Join them on that adventure at talkpython.fm slash stackoverflow. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code TALKPYTHON, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.